So when I was uh, growing up in Dallas in the 1980s, there were like six TV channels. That was what we had. That's all that was available, right? We had like your CBS, your ABC, your NBC, your network channels. Then you had PBS, which was channel 13. And then we had these two channels, channel 21 and channel 27. I don't know who was in charge of programming for those two channels. I'm pretty sure it was like a a trained monkey or something because they were the craziest compilations of the most random, bizarre television shows just kind of all thrown together on one channel, right? These days, we have our channels nice and organized. You have your home You have your home channels, you have your sappy romantic movie channels, you have your sports channels, you have your news channels. These channels were just kind of whatever they could grab. So you'd be watching wrestling, and that would go into religious programming, and that would go into like crazy local programming. It was just the most bizarre thing. But during the day, during the week, what they ran mostly was reruns of old 1950s and 1960s television shows, right? So as a kid, when you're homesick and you can watch all the TV, there's not a lot of options. Mostly you're watching 1950s and 1960s reruns. So I watched I Dream of Jeannie and I watched Bewitched, watched Leave it to Beaver, watched Gilligan's Island. I think my favorite show, the one that I, I loved to watch the most was Superman, right? The 1950s classic black and white Superman, faster than a speeding bullet. You know how it goes, right? More powerful than a locomotive, able to leap a tall building in a single bound. You got it. So I'd imagine myself as Superman, right? As a kid, you'd love to kind of play Superman. I wanted these superhuman powers. I would put a towel around my neck and pretend that I was Superman because I wasn't really sick. I was just faking it to stay home and watch TV. So I would play Superman when my parents weren't looking. I wanted to be Superman. I wanted powers beyond those of mortal beings, as it says in the beginning of Superman. I think this experience as a child that I'm sure all of us in our different ways can relate to and remember things that we did like this, it taps into a universal human thing, a deep human longing. We long to transcend limitations. We long to break out of the, the, bonds, the bounds that make us mortal humans. And you you can write this down if you're taking notes. We want to become super selves. This goes deep into the human soul. And it leads us into the question of identity. This conversation that we're having in this series on identity and gender as we're reflecting together as a church community, but how we engage with this conversation that's so prevalent in our culture, how we have this conversation in a healthy way. And last week I I, I began by asking, how do we have this conversation? What's a a way to approach this conversation given the so many challenges that there are in having the conversation, the context of our polarized culture? 
in what's at stake for so many in this conversation, the context of the culture wars that are so inflamed and in the context of all too often the failures of the church to have this conversation well and to love people well, how do we have this conversation? And can we do this without contributing to the culture wars? Can can we do this without dividing our congregation? And what I suggested last week is that the way that we need to approach this conversation is we need to engage the conversation from the proper story of identity. We need to make sure that we are talking about this from the right story, from our story, from the story of the cross, from the story of the triune God. I suggested last week that there are two stories that we have to be aware of. One is the in the beginning story, and one is the in the now story. So last week we looked at the in the beginning story, and we're reflecting on what is the vision of identity that's contained in the in the beginning story? What is the the vision of what it means to be human that's contained in that story? So we went back to Genesis chapter 1, the foundational biblical account of God and God's creation of humanity. And what we saw there as we dug into the in the beginning story is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exist eternally as one God in three persons, when he created the heavens and the earth, he created his image on the earth by creating us, humanity. And he created us in his image, male and female. We learned as we explored that, that male and female image God together. I don't image God by myself. You don't image God by yourself. We image God together in community, in fellowship as male and female because the God that we image is the triune God, the God who is one and three. Male and female created to dwell with God and with each other in unity. We are equal as male and female in our imaging of God, and we are different as male and female. And the in the beginning story also declares to us that our identity is not ours. It doesn't belong to us to shape and determine it as we choose because our identity is created by God. It belongs to God. And we are called to offer our whole selves to God. All of ourselves, our identity, our gender, giving it all to God because ultimately the in the beginning story centers on the cross of Jesus Christ and the call of Jesus Christ for all of us to lay down our lives as a sacrifice, to to dispossess ourselves of ownership of our own lives, to give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Now, this story that we looked at last week, the in the beginning story, that's a really different story than the story that our culture tells about identity and about what it means to be human. Because the modern story of identity centers on the idea of self-ownership. 
of, of self-definition. The modern story tells us over and over and over again that we do possess ourselves, that we are masters of ourselves, and that we can create ourselves as we see fit, as we choose. The modern story calls us to be inventors of ourselves. The question that I posed last week and the question I want to pick up this week is which story are we living according to? Which story will shape our vision of identity and gender? So there are two things that we're going to do this morning. We need to trace the in the now story. How did we get here? How do we get to this place in this time? What is the vision of humanity that's contained in the in the now story, the story that has come to predominate in our culture? And then after we've done that, we're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to go into Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see the biblical account of human rebellion, rejection of God and his lordship over us. A story that really is the root of the modern story. So it's a two-for-one day, right? It's a buy-one, get-one-free day. First, you get a philosophy lecture, and then you get a sermon. I can just feel the room buzzing with excitement at at this prospect. So let's turn to the the in-the-now story. How do we get here? We live at a particular time and a particular place, right? It's October 16th, 2022. This time didn't just appear out of nowhere. Our time is a product of history. Our time, the day that we are living in, the days that we are indwelling, our time is the result of a complicated interweaving of ideas and institutions and historical events and a process that has brought us to now. And a key feature of now is a story that our culture tells about what it means to be human and about what that means for our understanding of our own selves and our own identity and our gender and sexuality. See, this story also didn't just appear out of nowhere. It also is a product of historical development. And so one of the things I think it's, it's really important for us to do as we're still kind of laying the foundation of this series, is to engage the question of identity and gender by understanding how we got to now. What are the ideas that have come to dominance in our culture? Where do they come from? They didn't just appear 10 years ago or five years ago. Where have they come from? Why does our culture have the vision of identity that it does? And how has the self come to be at the center of that story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the modern story of identity in four easy steps. Okay? That just thrill your heart when you hear about that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four thinkers that have, that have flowed, those ideas have flowed into today, really shaped the world that we live and shaped how our culture understands identity. Now, this is a 
very big picture overview, all right? This isn't a 20,000-foot view. This isn't a 50,000-foot view. This is like a satellite from space kind of a view. But I think it's helpful for us to have some of these hooks that we can understand how ideas were formulated and how they came to, to, to flow into the world that we are living in today. All right, so step one is the authentic self. And this takes us back to a philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Maybe you've heard of Rousseau. Maybe you know a little bit about Rousseau. Maybe you have some inkling in your mind of a philosophy class that you had in college that this is prompting a very, very faint memory. A little bit about Rousseau. So Rousseau was a French philosopher. He lived from 1712 to 1778. Rousseau's best-known work is a book called The Social Contract. And that was published in 1762. Rousseau's vision of humanity and how this vision has shaped our world, I think is best captured from the very first line of that book, The Social Contract. Here, here's what he wrote in the first line. It says this, Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. That's a really good opening line to a book. Philosophy is not all just kind of dusty, gritty stuff. There's some really good stuff to read in it. Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Well, what did Rousseau mean by that? What what is it that he's communicating? And what vision of humanity does this carry with it? Rousseau was living at a time of really great transformations that were going on in his world. Kind of the transition from from the pre-modern world to the modern world. What I mean by that is this, in the pre-modern world, there was a particular way of understanding the world and humanity. Society was structured around kings and queens and priests and aristocrats and landowners. Like people, these are the people who ruled the world. These are the people who were in charge. They had the kind of the structures of authority were in them. And this is a world that was shaped by tradition in which people found their place in society based on this structure And this social structure was assumed to be static. You might change who the king was. You might change who the queen was. There might be a a war from time to time. But basically, the structure was what it was. And that was just assumed to be the way that it was. And then Rousseau picked up his pen. And he challenged this idea that society is static. For Rousseau, kings and queens and dukes and aristocrats, they weren't established by God. They inhabited structures that functioned to keep them in power. And as a result, Rousseau had a a pretty negative view of society and its impact on on humans. He, He believed that humans were corrupted by society. So for him and his vision of, of humanity, he would have said that the individual self is good. Like in ourselves, we are good. The problem is we're born into a society that's structured in a particular way that makes us bad. Because a society is structured in a particular way that we see other people have stuff and now we want to go after that stuff. So it breeds vanity and it breeds competition and it breeds, breeds the search for money and for power and all of these things do bad things to us. 
So when Rousseau says man is born free, he's saying man is, humans are naturally good. When he says, but everywhere is in chains, he's saying we have been chained by the evil structures of society. So what's the solution? What's the answer? For Rousseau, the answer was we need to find truth by looking into ourselves, by turning within, right? If the self is good, then we will find truth by listening to our authentic self. Our inner self is where we will find truth. By listening to the desires of our heart, we will find what is true. So Rousseau believed that the authentic self is the guide to truth. We have to connect to that authentic self as the means of finding true freedom. Does that sound familiar? Anyone? It seemed like an idea from 300 years ago that is not irrelevant today. It's very relevant today. All right, step two is the natural self. Looking at the romantic poets for this. So um, Mindy and I, we lived in England for four years when I was in grad school. And while we lived there, we had the opportunity from time to time to travel around the, the UK a, a little bit. Uh, and one of the trips we went to was, uh, went on was to the Lake District, which is up in the northern part of, uh, of England. It is a gorgeous place. Beautiful lakes, rolling hills, inspiring scenery, five stars would strongly recommend one of the stops that we made when we were on that trip was at, at this uh, lovely college, uh, lovely cottage. It's a cottage called Dove Cottage. It's in the village of Grasmere in England. Dove Cottage was the home of William Wordsworth, one of the great English romantic poets. Wordsworth was part of this movement called Romanticism, which was kind of in the later 18th century and into the 19th century. Romanticism was a reaction against the first big wave of industrialization. Remember Jason's canary in the coal mine thing from a few weeks ago, right? Industrialization and all that was going on with that. Similar to Rousseau, the the romantic poets were critiquing the form that society had taken in their day. They were deeply concerned about the exploitation of the earth, the damage that that was doing to people who were caught in the gears of the industrial machine. And as a response, they led a movement to return to nature. To come away from the grimy, mechanical, technological world to places like Grasmere, to commune with nature. And they hoped to find there their true selves in the celebration of the natural world. I think this idea is best summarized by this line from Wordsworth. He he wrote this, come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. You notice that the N in nature is capitalized. That's not a mistake. It's capitalized because nature takes on the role of the divine in romantic movements. Nature becomes the thing that we are to commune with. Nature becomes the thing that if we engage with nature, then we will find 
our true selves. So you have the corrupting influences of society and the response to that, the solution to that is to turn to the self in our relation to nature. Step three is the uber self from Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know if you know much about Nietzsche. I don't know what you think about Nietzsche. Can I make a confession? I love Nietzsche. I could do without the atheism. Right? I, 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 not, I don't agree with that, but I, I love Nietzsche. He's such a compelling writer, and his critiques are usually really, really insightful. But I think he has some problematic things in the kind of vision that he lays out. So I want to talk this through a little bit. So Nietzsche was writing his philosophy in the late 1800s. It was an unstable time in Europe. The revolutions and wars were occurring. And Nietzsche was looking for a different way, a new way of life. Maybe the best known line from Nietzsche, probably one that you've heard, maybe one that you know, is this. God is dead. And we have killed him. God is dead and we have killed him. What does Nietzsche mean by that? Does it mean there once was a God and now we've murdered him and now there is no God? That's that's not what he means. He doesn't ever believe that there was a God. What he believes is that the modern world has made faith in God unnecessary. Science has given us understanding of the universe. Modern people no longer need the hypothesis of God. We once lived as people in an enchanted world, this kind of traditional world of God and angels and demons, but now we live in a world of physics and astronomy and chemistry, which explain the world and make belief in God unnecessary. So Nietzsche believed that the modern world needed to cast off the remnants of faith and particularly the relics of Christian morality that were still lingering around. Even though the world was moving on, those relics were still lingering around. So what's the solution? What's Nietzsche's solution? His solution is become the ubermensch, the superman. Become the superman. This is what Nietzsche proposed. Who is the superman? The superman is the person with the courage to accept that God is dead. And that the moral code that came with belief in God is also dead. So the Superman would be the person who is brave enough to face the empty cosmos that is devoid of meaning and determine meaning for ourselves. The Superman is the one who would invent a self free from external constraints, a self that isn't controlled by the moral vision of the old world. Because if there is no God, then there is no God-given law. And if there is no God-given law, then there is no authority outside of the self. And if there is no authority outside of the self, then who's the authority? The self. I am. So where do I look for authority? I look to me. I look to myself. Nietzsche said, accept that you are your own ruler. Be Superman. Find transcendence in yourself. And step four is the sexual self. 
and Sigmund Freud. Freud was an Austrian psychologist around the turn of the 20th century. He was a pioneer of psychology, one of the, the first to really take scientific principles and apply them to the inner lives of humans, or to use science to understand the inner drives, the inner motives of humanity. So what were those drives? What were those motives? His answer is found in this quote. What do people demand of life and wish to achieve in it? They strive after happiness. This endeavor aims on the one hand at an absence of pain and on the other at the experiencing of strong feelings of pleasure. So how does Freud define the human drive? Avoid pain and seek pleasure. And where is the greatest pleasure to be found? For Freud, it was in what he called eroticism. He said that humans should make eroticism the central point of life. Deeply connects the inner self, the drive for pleasure, sexuality. Right? Freud kind of releases into this world this vision of sexuality that, that unites it at the core with human identity. That if life is about pursuing pleasure, and if sex is the highest form of pleasure, then make your life about sex. Sexuality. It makes sexual pleasure the essence of being human. And so calls humans to define ourselves based on sexual desire. Is sexuality an important part of being human? Absolutely. Is it the essence? I don't think so. So now we need to pull some threads together. One thing I want to be clear about is I think there are some really interesting insights in all of these people. I'm, I'm certainly not wanting to say we should not read these people. There, there's nothing to be found there. Let's have a, a book burning. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I do think there's a cumulative effect of these ideas that as they kind of cascade through history and as they gather steam and as they combine in different ways, they come to us with a vision of what it means to be human and a vision of what it means to be a self that I think have become deeply problematic in our modern world. There are some assumptions that we can pull from this that, that underlie our modern conception of the self. The first thing is that our self-assessment is accurate. There's an idea here that if we turn to ourself, that what we find inside is accurate, that we can access the truth about ourselves by looking to ourselves. The second is kind of follows on from this is that our inner self is trustworthy. The third is that self-definition is the path to fulfillment. The fourth is if we desire it, it must be valid. And the fifth is that sexuality is the heart of identity. And you take these different things and you put them together and you can see why the self 
has come to such a dominant place in the culture that we live in and striving for the self and asserting the self and defining the self is at the heart of our cultural understanding of what it means to be human and of what the meaning of life is. Being selves is good. God created us to be selves. But the modern story becomes problematic, not because it promotes the self, but it because it promotes self-ownership, self-determination, self-lordship. This story actually, though, didn't start with Rousseau. It goes back before Rousseau. In fact, it goes all the way back. It goes all the way back to Genesis. So now we're going to turn to part two, the sermon, which won't be as long as part one. Don't worry about that. But I want us to open up to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, looking at verses one through five. We read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit From the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or you will die. That tree was the knowledge of good and evil. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So God puts Adam and Eve, he creates them. He creates them to live with him. He creates them to live with one another for God and for neighbor. And he puts them in the garden And he provides them the tree of life, but he also provides them a boundary. Don't transgress this boundary. If you transgress this boundary, you will cease to become who I created you to be. And he puts them there to dwell with him and to dwell with each other. And the serpent comes and the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to believe that God wasn't good. That God could not be trusted. That the life that he had given them wasn't the fullness of, of life. And the serpent comes and he tempts Adam and Eve to believe that they could have a better life, that they could have a more fulfilled life, a happier life. How? The temptation is to become like God. Right? This is the promise that the serpent makes to Adam and Eve. If you eat of that tree, you will become like God. You can be your own master. You can be your own true self. You don't have to obey God. You don't have to submit to God. You can be your own Lord. The serpent promised Adam and Eve that they will find true life if they turn to themselves, if they trust in themselves, if they take possession of their own lives. Rather than receive life from God, rather than living under the word of God, rather than giving yourself as an offering to God, you can live for yourself. You can determine your own life. You can determine your own identity. You can create yourself. How? You can become like God. How? How is that defined? Here's how verse five ends. I I didn't read it just a second ago. I want to 
finish it now. It says, you can become like God. How's that defined? Knowing good and evil. (laughs) To become like God is to know good and evil. Does that seem weird to anyone? Like when I was a kid watching Channel 27 and imagining that I was the Superman, it wasn't about knowing good and evil, right? When I wanted to have these superhuman powers, I wanted to be able to leap over tall buildings in a single bound. I wanted to be faster than a locomotive or stronger than a locomotive. I wanted to do these things. Even more than that, I wanted to be able to spin cosmos into existence. I wanted to raise people from the dead. I mean, if you're going to give me godlike powers, give me that. What's defined here is knowing good and evil. What, what is God like about that? Why, why is that how godlikeness is defined? This, this grasping of the self, this taking of our own identity. This tells us that we weren't created to know good and evil. Adam and Eve didn't have the knowledge of good and evil prior to taking the fruit from the tree. We weren't created to know good and evil. What were we created to know? Or better, who were we created to know? We are created to know God. We are created to be in fellowship with God, to trust God, to lean upon him, to allow him to guide our steps, to allow him to define who we are in our relationship with him to allow him to possess us in the best sense of that word. Because it's in that possession that a loving father frees us to be who he created to be. See, the knowledge of good and evil is the content of human rebellion against God because it's the means by which we claim authority over our own lives. Now that we know good and evil, we will trust in ourselves and turn away from God. Becoming like God, knowing good and evil, is to say, I don't belong to you, God. I belong to me. I belong to myself. It's the way that we assert our own self-mastery. And it's the story of humanity. It's not just the story of our culture over the last few hundred years. It's taken a particular form in our culture. But this is the story of humanity in our rejection of God as the Lord. What it boils down to is this. As those who have rejected God, we have become the heart turned in on itself. The heart turned in on itself, created to love God and to love neighbor, created to find our life in God created to find our life and giving our lives to others. Now, instead of being outwardly facing with our hearts, now we're inward facing with our hearts. The heart turned in on itself. We were created to be gods, but we have rejected God as our Lord. We've desired to transcend ourselves, and that has led to death. It has led to death because it leads us to separation from God. But God calls us back to himself. God loves the creature, even in our rejection of God. 
God loves each of us in our own pursuits of ourselves. He pursues after us to draw us back to himself. And he promises us that that's where we will find life. In laying down our lives, we gain our lives. The in the now story tells us that we can define ourselves, that identity is ours. The in the beginning story, the story of humanity that the Bible tells, is that when we seek to possess ourselves, we lose everything. And so God calls each of us to return to him. He offers us the living hope of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you for the goodness that you pour out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We confess, I confess, I seek to possess myself. I so desire to be my own God. God, free me from that. Free us from that. That we might find ourselves once again in you. That we might find our identities in being yours. And that your spirit might fill our hearts and give us life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Excellent job. Thank you, Joel. Yep. Yep. Sounds good.